Good to be here tonight. Truly glad that I have the opportunity to present a portion of God's Word for your consideration tonight. As you can see, the title for the lesson tonight is the third psalm. That's what we're going to talk about. Neil talked about the first psalm several weeks ago, and then Titus talked on the second psalm a couple weeks after that. I think Titus had already planned on doing the second psalm before Neil talked on the first psalm. So they were kind of independent of each other. I'm totally doing the third psalm because they did the first and second one. So I appreciate them for setting this up for me. I, I love the psalms, as I know we all do. There's so much comfort. There's so much wisdom to be, uh, to be taken from it. There, there's, just, there's just so much through, through all the psalms that we have given to us. So what I'm going to do is I go through the third psalm here. There's, there's a couple things I want to do. The first thing I want to talk about the superscription of this psalm and talk about superscriptions of the psalms in general. The second thing that I want to talk about is the specific superscription of this psalm, which is it talking about David and Absalom. And then I want to talk about the text of the third psalm as we go through the study. So that'll kind of give you a, a layout of the way that I'm going to approach this. Um, I'm a math teacher, as most of you know, and as a math teacher, I mean, that's what my life is about, is about technical details. So I, I like technical details. So some of this is going to be that, but I'm going to get to some application stuff as well. So what I want to talk about for a little bit it, to start off is the superscription. Now, when you look at the third psalm, if you would take out your Bible, take out your Bible there in front of you and turn to the third psalm if you would. And look at, at what's going on here. Now, I took a picture of this act, the actual Bible that's in our pew here, so you can see it up here. But I'd like for you to, to look at this and see this. So you have Psalm 3, the third psalm. And you can see the top part there that I have highlighted in blue up there. I don't know if you can tell that very good. But the, the phrase that says, the Lord helps his troubled people, that is something that is supplied by the publishers of this specific Bible. Now, I looked at the, at the front of this Bible, and it says that it was in, in 2018. So that the Lord helps his troubled people was basically added in 2018. So it is a very, very recent edition. It has nothing to do with inspired text. Now, there's nothing against that. I love those titles, and I look at those, and they help me. But that part is, is absolutely, totally modern. Three, four, five years old, maybe. The second part of that, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That is a totally different situation than what is right above there. That a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, is a superscription to this third psalm. When you look at the next psalm, the fourth psalm, the safety of the faithful. The safety of the faithful, again, that's just provided by the publishers of this Bible, three, four years old maybe. The second part of that, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, is a superscription to this prophecy, or to this psalm, sorry. Now, what I want to say is, you know, you just, you learn stuff as you learn it. And this may be in one of those situations where this has been preached on ten times. I've heard this ten times in my life, and it just may never take hold in my mind. I don't know. I've always assumed that the superscriptions of the Psalms was a fairly recent addition, as, as in, I mean, maybe three or four or five hundred years old or whatever. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. 
And just to get to the chase here, I'm not saying that the superscriptions are necessarily inspired, but there is way more validity to those superscriptions than what I had always thought in the past. One thing that uh, was interesting as I kind of dove into this and, and studying this, the superscription to the 18th Psalm is actually quoted in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 1. What I did is I took a picture of both of those and I just laid them side by side. So I want you to see this. And again, this is from your pew Bible right there. But this is the 18th Psalm. You can see the superscription says, well, God the Sovereign Savior, again, that's added by the publisher. So there's, there's nothing to that. But to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who spoke to the, uh, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on that day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. So you can see this part right here is the superscription to the 18th Psalm. But this is quoted in 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is quoted as if it is inspired text because this is inspired text. That is part of the Bible. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 1, you can compare this to this. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. David spoke to the words of the Lord of this song. And you can read that whole thing. It does skip the first verse here, but then the second verse, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust. So to me, that's an interesting thing to see that, that the superscription to the 18th Psalm is quoted in 2 Samuel 22. Again, I'm not saying it's necessarily inspired, but this gives a lot more weight to it to me than it has in the past. Another thing that... Uh, that I found out as I was studying about this is that the superscriptions were not just added three or four or five hundred years ago. The superscriptions are in every single manuscript that exists. Um, there's a lot of manuscripts that, are, that have been used to give us the translations of the Bible that we have. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a famous manuscript that were found you know, uh, close to Jerusalem. Those manuscripts were believed to have been written from 130 B.C. before Christ to 70 B.C. In those manuscripts, those superscriptions are there. The Septuagint, which was written even earlier than that, it was um, part, part of the Septuagint was in uh, 300 B.C., but the part where they actually translated the Psalms was around 200 B.C. to 100 B.C. And in the Septuagint, um, the Septuagint was, was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible so that the Greeks could have that. But in the Septuagint, those superscriptions are found in that. So again, all of the superscriptions that we have were in, they were tied to the biblical text even before Jesus was born, even 200 years before he was born. And even more than that, um, what, I was, what I read as I studied in this is that the people who translated the Septuagint around 200 BC, they mistranslated some of the words in the superscriptions because some of the words that they were translating were, had already fallen out of use. And so the words that were in those superscriptions had been around long enough that they had already fallen out of use, which means that they'd been around for a long time already and had got to the point where they couldn't find out what those words actually meant. I think they later found out and, and got them translated properly, but they were words that were already archaic to those people who translated them in 200 B.C. So again, I'm not saying necessarily that they're inspired, but there's a lot more to those superscriptions than I had thought before. 
So as I was, as I was researching that, and there, there's a, a lot more to that, obviously, but um, as I was studying that, people always asked the question whenever they were talking about all this, people who were for it being inspired, people who were against it being inspired, they kind of asked this question, well, what purpose would you have in wanting to know what the this, this superscription is, or how could the superscription help us? And I think most of them asked that in a, in a rhetorical way. They knew the answer to that. If, if those things truly are inspired, then it does give us a huge insight into what, to what this psalm actually means. Now, I want to talk about application of this. The biblical text doesn't just stand on its own in, in the chapter. The entire Bible should be used to inform us about other parts of the Bible. So, knowing, knowing something about that superscription being applied to, to something else and cross-referencing those, it gives us a lot of information. It helps us to, to understand things better. You know, as an application of that, we don't just need to read Jude 3 without thinking about Ephesians 4 and verse 15 and vice versa. Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting to contend earnestly for the faith. I've heard people in the past use this, use this verse to basically, what it says to contend earnestly for the faith, that they were going out and they were going out swinging. And if somebody got punched in the face, you're getting punched with the truth and that's your fault for getting in the way of truth. And basically going out and being arrogant about it and using this to, to think the scripture tells us to be arrogant about it. But we should read Jude 3 in light of Ephesians 5 and verse, uh, 4 and verse 15 that says, but speaking the truth in love. So when we go out and we contend earnestly for the faith, we need to make sure we're thinking about that as well. And using other parts of the scripture to, uh, to bring those together and to make us more fully informed and to make us the best servants that we can be. We shouldn't just read Acts 2 and 38 without thinking about Hebrews 11, verse 6. Acts 2, 38 says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the absolute truth. Um, I remember whenever I was studying with David Earl, he would always say, you know, if some people just think baptism, like baptism, baptism only is what saves people. And said, so if that's true, we should just hire a bunch of big dudes and just go around and start socking people underneath the water and they'll be saved. Well, Baptism is absolutely essential. You know I, I believe that. But also, Hebrews 11 and verse 6 is true also, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. And, and I know that's basically contained in Acts 2.38, but again, my point is, is it's, it's important to not just like land on one verse and like make everything about that one verse. We've got to think about how other things influence other things in the Bible. And one more example of this, we shouldn't just read John 3.16 without thinking about what John 8 verse 24 says and vice versa. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Some people say, well, you know, that, that's all that matters. God loved the world, and since he loved the world, he gave his only Son, then, then you're, you're good. But you need to think about what John 8 verse 24 says, where it says, Therefore I said unto you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So yes, it's true that God loves the world. He absolutely does. He loves us immeasurably, above what we could describe. But also, God is just, and he has to have a payment for the sin that we commit, and we will die in our sins if we don't acknowledge Jesus and who he is and accept him on his terms. So in general, we shouldn't think about anything in our life without thinking about God and his help in our everyday life.
And not, not just putting one verse to, to help another verse, we should do that, but in general, we shouldn't think about anything in our lives without thinking about God being there to help us. And actually, that's exactly what this psalm is about. Okay, now getting back over to the third psalm. As I said, I want to think about the superscription to this psalm. The superscription to the third psalm is this. It's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so what I want to do for a little bit is I want to talk about what, it, what this is talking about so that we can get up to speed. And probably most of you know this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it. Um, Timothy Fleming in our spring meeting talked about this exact thing. Not about the third psalm, but he talked about Absalom and David. Gave a very good lesson on that. And um, if you want to get a whole lot of nitty-gritty detail about that, you can go and listen to his sermon on that. I know Titus has preached on Absalom also uh, in the last year or two. So what I want to do is I want to I want to just quickly uh, get the story of what's going on here so that we can really, truly understand what the third psalm is talking about and, and again to help use that part to help us understand this better. Okay, now basically what I did is I listened to Timothy's lesson and I just kind of took a paraphrase of what he did. I took some stuff out, added a little bit of stuff, but I'm going to kind of go through the same points that he did as he talked about Absalom. Now, to go all the way back to get to the beginning of this, the first part of this is that uh, is getting to David's sin with Bathsheba. And here in, the, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to read here about Nathan the prophet talking to David about this sin and the judgment that was going to be given to him because of this. So in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. So again, this is Nathan talking to David. So Nathan's telling David, the sword's never going to depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So in response to David's sin with Bathsheba, this is what's told him is that what I have there highlighted in yellow, there's going to be adversity um, against you, and it's going to come from your own house. And that's where we're going to get to the superscription that we're talking about here in the third psalm of David fleeing from his son Absalom. So this is where that first uh, thing is given to David. Now, David has at least three kids, three kids that are involved in this story. There's Amnon, which is David's oldest son, and then he has two other uh, children, Tamar and Absalom. Now, Tamar and Absalom are full-blood brother and sisters. Amnon is their half-brother. So Amnon falls in love with his, uh, his half-sister Tamar, and he forces himself on her. In 2 Samuel 13, 12 through 14, it says this, But she answered him, this is Tamar talking to Amnon, No, my brother, or we could say no, my half-brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. So Amnon commits this sin against his half-sister. Now Absalom, Tamar's full-blood brother, 
Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that goes on here, but of course, Absalom hates Amnon for what he did to his sister. And so we see that Absalom kills his half-blood brother Amnon two years after this event occurred. So in 2 Samuel 13, 28 through 29, it says, Now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. So Absalom waited. He, he never forgot about this. He was planning on it the whole time and found a good time to do this. He called his half-blood brother in Amnon to a, to a party, got him drunk, and then he had his servants to kill him. Now we see after this, obviously Absalom has just killed Amnon, the firstborn of David. He's killed the one who is the first one in line to take over the kingdom of Israel. So Absalom is definitely in a, in a bad place here. And on top of that, of course, he's, he's committed murder. So 2 Samuel 13, 37 through 9, it says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and, uh, and was there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon, because he was dead. So we see Absalom flees here, and it says that David mourned for his son every day. Now, he wasn't mourning for Amnon, the one who was killed, because you can see in the last part of this, it says he was uh, comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So David wasn't concerned about Amnon. The person he was mourning for was for his son Absalom. And it says that he was, Absalom was there for three years. So after this three years, Joab convinces David to bring Absalom back um, after him being in exile for that long. It's obviously a, a uh, complex situation. David still loves his son Absalom, but he's, Absalom killed the, you know, the firstborn to, to get the kingdom. So it's a complicated situation. David loves his son Absalom. He wants to see him, but at the same time, he doesn't want to see him. So... Um, 2 Samuel 14, verses 23 through 24. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house. So David, David says, okay, bring Absalom. But he said, when you bring Absalom, you bring him and let him live in his own house. And he says, but do not let him see my face. So David says, bring him here. And in fact, he was going to be pretty close to David. But he said, bring him here, let him live there, don't let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So this goes on for another two years, where Absalom is there close to his father David, and he lives there for two years without seeing his father David. And again, it's a a complex situation. David loves him, he wants to see him, but he's got to keep his distance from him. Okay, after the two years, Absalom gets Joab to set up a meeting between himself and King David. So Absalom at this point now is ready to see his dad. He's ready to see his dad, King David. And in all of this, there's all kinds of other stuff going on. I'm just hitting the highlights, but Absalom sets up this meeting. So in 2 Samuel 14, verse 33, it says, So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. So they set this up, and Absalom comes in, and he's able to see his father at this point after being two years living just very close to him. Now, 
Absalom definitely uh, is not a loyal son at all. And Absalom, his heart is, is to have power, to have control. And so what Absalom does is he starts to steal the hearts of the people of Israel so that he can take the kingdom from his father David. In 2 Samuel 15, 2-4, it says this, Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made the judge in the land, and everyone who, was, who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. So what Absalom does is he goes in and he starts standing at the place where people are coming in to see King David because they've got problems. He would stand at the gate, basically, and as people were coming to bring these lawsuits, to bring these cases to him, Absalom would stand out there and he'd say, just strike up conversation. Hey, man, you know, where are you from? What's going on? And, and make small talk, and then he would ask them what they were, what they were there for, and he just said, that, that is absolutely wrong that somebody did that to you. And you are the victim here. You are the victim. And he would play to everybody like that. Basically, he became a politician, and he was just trying to, to get people to, to like him, and that's exactly what he did. He was very charming, although uh, it was for a very, very bad purpose. He was wanting to steal the kingdom from his father. So Absalom does this for four years. He's definitely dedicated to, what, to his ambition. He does this for four years, and after this four years, he begins his overthrow of his father. So at this point, Absalom has done a lot of work. He's got a lot of people on his side, been working deals and doing things like that to get people to like him. So in 2 Samuel 15, verses 12 through 13, it says this, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And so he's, he's setting all, uh, Absalom is setting all of this up where it's going to be basically, uh, and he's got to do it this way. It can't be a, a gradual thing. At, at a certain point, he's got to say, okay, everybody, you start saying that I'm the king. And he's getting all these people to be behind him so that He'll have enough voices, basically, to help him to become, uh, to try to become the king. So he does this, and we see here that David flees from Absalom because Absalom has gotten such a following behind him. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 14, it says this, So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so David sees what's going on. And so he says to these people, let us get up, let's get out of here, we'll not, we will not escape from Absalom. And of course, that's, you know, that's the situation David is in. David is the, the primary problem that Absalom has. If Absalom can kill David, then he, he truly is. He's, he's in good. And so David knows this. He knows he's got to leave. So this is, this is, what the superscription of the third psalm is talking about is David having to flee from, from his son Absalom who has done all this stuff and worked against him to be able to take his kingdom. Now, we see here that David weeps in response to this. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 30 through 31, 
This is as, as he is left, as he is fleeing. He says, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people were with him, covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So as we think about what's going on here, I just, again, as, as we think about, as we think about scriptures and think about, um, try to truly put ourselves in the situation, there's more to this than just a person trying to take over David's kingdom. It's his own son. It's his own son. It's his own son that he loved. It's, it's his own son that he loved even after that son killed one of his other sons. It's, it's the boy that he raised and just, the, just thinking about the, the pain that he had in his heart from, from having to deal with, with the problem of him having to flee because somebody's trying to take over his kingdom, but from the boy that he raised, that he's having to deal with this. And I'm not going to go into much more of it besides this, but, but later after all of this stuff is said and done, Absalom... The, the son is, is eventually killed. And even after the son was killed, David still wept and mourned for his son that was killed. But David is definitely in a, in a difficult situation here. His own son, his own boy, has turned against him. But here, in, in this place here in 2 Kings 15, they tell him also that Ahithophel, which was one of the guys that was close to him, they said that he's turned against you also and he's with Absalom. And so it's just... Basically, when it rains, it was pouring on David at this point. Okay, so this gets us kind of in the mindset of where we're at here in the third psalm. And this is a cry for help during troubling times. And I, I will go through this, this last part quicker than, than what I've been doing to, to lead up to this. So first thing is, how do we deal with difficulties? You know, everybody has difficulties. Everybody has problems in their life. The difference is, how do we deal with the difficulties that we're given in our lives? James 1, verse 2 through 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James says here, when we fall into various trials, when we fall into difficult times, exactly like what we're studying about David here, about him being in this time of him having to run from his own son. James said to take those opportunities and not that, he's not saying don't, don't look at them like they're fun. I mean, don't become a person who basically enjoys torture. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying take those things and use them to become a better person because every single one of you is going to go through this stuff. Every single one of you. And it's how, how do you deal with it? You can allow it to break you down and to to make you worse, basically. Or you can take it and you can say, how can I use this to become a better person? And it, again, it's not going to be fun. It was not fun for David at all. And in our trials and difficulties, it's not going to be fun. But that's what we need to do. How, how do we deal with these difficulties? So in the third Psalm, verses 1 through 2, David says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Now, 
just, just as a quick point here, if you remember back, um, let me try to fly back here and see if I can find this verse real quick. Uh, right, yeah, right here. In where David is talking, it says, With Absalom continually they have increased in number. Those who are against him. That, uh, about the third from the bottom line, says has increased in number. I mean, that matches exactly with this part right here in, the, in, the, in this verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. So that language is very similar there. He said, many are they who rise up against me. And again here, as, as we think about this and think about this in the context now of, of thinking about maybe this is David, you know, fleeing from his son Absalom. This is what he's talking about, is the, all these people who are against me, all these people who are fighting against me and even, even my own son. He said, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Selah. Okay, so is the trouble that David's going through, is it self-imposed or is it totally the fault of the other party? Now, I believe it's partly self-imposed. I believe part of this goes directly back to the, to the judgment that Nathan gave to David in his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan told David, as a promise from God, there will be adversity that comes from your own house, and it was because of his sin. So it's partly self-imposed, the trouble that he's going through. But also, Absalom had a decision to make there also. And he made terrible decisions, and he was definitely against the wisdom and counsel of God. So he, had, he was partly to blame for this, but his son also definitely had part in to blame in this also. But here's the thing that, that I want to say is it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's David's fault. It doesn't matter if it's his son, son's fault or some other party's fault. The answer to the problem is the same doesn't matter if it's something that I've caused or a problem that somebody else has caused for me. The answer is the same to that, is that I need to trust in God in those difficulties that I'm facing. I need to turn to Him. You know, the biggest problem that we can face in our lives is not turning to God. That's the biggest problem we could face in this life. You know, it's not who's against us. It's the biggest problem is not how severe our problems are. The biggest problem is not how many problems we have. The biggest problem that we could have for ourselves in this life is not turning to God. Um, I was thinking about uh, Lyle's lesson this afternoon in light of this, and I think Job is a perfect example of this. Job had all kinds of problems that he had, and like problems that would, would I would say it'd break me. Yeah, I, I would have a hard time making it through that, losing, losing my children, and, and that would be the worst thing, of course, of all of that. That would, be, that would be hard, hard, hard to deal with. But Job turned to God. And if, if Job would have, I don't know, I was just thinking, what if, what if Job would have been presented with, the, with you know, a, a difference there? What if Satan would have said, hey, Job, I'll make you an offer. Either you can curse God and you're, you'll get to live like you are right now, or... If you, if you still acknowledge that God is supreme, then all of this is going to happen. You know, but in him losing all of that, Job still trusted in God. And if he would have turned from God, that would have been the worst thing that would have happened to him. That would have been the worst thing to happen to him if he would have turned from God in that situation. So what are barriers to us 
turning to God like David did here in this? What are some barriers that we have in doing that? Well, one thing definitely is pride. Pride in us saying, well, you know, I've gotten to this point in my life. I, you know, I basically know how to live my life. I know where I'm at. And basically just trying to rely on myself. First Peter 5 and 6, Therefore, humble yourselves, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that you may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I mean, I guess that's kind of an obvious thing. And if you're, you know, struggling with pride, somebody just telling you to be humble, you know, that may, you know, you, you may need some other steps to get there. But this, I mean, this is the, this is the answer to that, is you need to learn to humble yourself and learn to realize that somebody has it more figured out than you do. There's even people here on this earth who have it more figured out than you do. But especially in heaven, there's somebody who has it figured out and has had it figured out forever and knows, knows infinitely more than you know about things and you need to submit yourself to him. Another barrier that we may have to turning ourselves over to God is maybe just simply ignorance. Just not knowing that, that he, he's there, that he exists and that he wants us to cast our care upon him. When it's ignorant, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, be diligent to pre- present yourselves approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you don't realize and know that God truly wants to help you, it's because you're ignorant of the scriptures, basically. I'm just going to put it like that. If you don't know that God wants to help you, you're ignorant of what the Bible says. He wants to help you. And what you need to do is you need to start studying the Bible so that you can understand his will and his desire for you. Another barrier to us turning to God is simply believing in lies. So many people believe in lies. In John 8 and verse 44, it says, When he speaks a lie, Jesus speaking of Satan, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and he is the father of it. You know, when you're in the world and you're, maybe you're talking about politics, one side is going to say that side over there is liars and this side over here is going to say they're liars. And whatever, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into any of that. But I'm saying this, is if God's over here and Satan is over here and, say, and, say, and Satan is saying something than what God is saying different, he's a liar. And he is a liar. He is a liar. And so whenever you believe what the world says, and that is in direct opposition to what God says, you are believing a lie. You're believing a lie. And we need to realize that and to turn from it. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it says, Whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He says that there are people in this world who are, who are here. There's lots of people who are here. That Satan loves to blind people's minds. He loves to put fog in people's minds where they don't see clearly and stumble over every little thing that happens to them and believe things that are in direct opposition to what reality is. And when they do that, when he does that, he accomplishes his goal. And I think all of us with honest heart realize if somebody is lying to me, I, I want to know what that lie is and I want to get as far away from that lie as I possibly can. And if you're not turning your heart over to God, it may be that you believe lies. And again, I guess the way to fix that's the, the, the same fix of the last one is you need to study scriptures and make sure that you, you know that, that God does want us to turn to him. In the last part of, of that first uh, two verses there, he said, these people have risen up against me. And he said, many of them say to me, there's no help 
for him in God. So these people are saying to him, you have no help from God. Don't, don't even look to him. He's not, he's not here to help you. Look, you're just, you look, at the, look at the pitiful person that you are. There's no person to help you here. And that's, ex- that, I mean, I guess that fits into what I just said. That's a lie from Satan. That's exactly a lie from Satan. Again, the biggest problem that we could face is not turning to God. That's exactly what the enemy is doing here. They're saying God is not going to help you. They're trying to truly break David. They can do all manner of evil against him, but he truly loses when he turns from God. Again, you could be going through all kinds of things, but the worst thing that you could bring upon yourself is turning away from God. When you turn to him, and even if it's something you brought upon yourself or if something's brought, somebody's brought it upon you, the answer is the same, reach to God. Look to him, he will be there. As the scripture says in Romans 8 and verse 35, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the second two verses of the third psalm, but you, O Lord, and really I am, I'm gonna get through here quicker than you think, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. He said, Lord, you are a shield to me. You protect me. And he said, you are the one who lift up my head. And I thought this Psalm 35 verse here was perfect for this. The psalmist here said, I placed, or I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. And talking about this person who, who's bowed down and who is in this trouble and in this difficulty in his, in his life here in the 35th Psalm, but David says in the third Psalm, he says, you lift up my head and you help me to, to deal with, with these things that happen in my life. Okay, in the last part of the fourth verse there, I think this shows up twice, maybe three times. The end of, of the fourth verse there is the word Selah. This is something that I have, again, uh, this is something that I've, I've learned fairly recently, just last few months. I always thought Selah basically meant amen. And the, the meaning is not totally known, but it's, it's not exactly amen what it means. So I don't know if, that, if you can read that. Um, so the word Selah is to lift up exalt, or it's a technical musical term which probably means to show accentuation, a pause, or interruption. And um, a brother presented this to me a few months ago, and it, I mean, it matches with this. That's what scholars think now, is it was like a, a term to like to pause and to stop. And what this brother told me, and what I've been doing as I've been reading through the Psalms, is to do that. Is when you get to the word Selah, is you could read the word Selah or not, but whenever you get to the word Selah, stop. And stop for 10 or 15 seconds. And truly think about what you just read. Because it's so easy, just, especially when it's in the middle, just to keep flying through. But do that. When you're reading through the Psalms, when you get to the word Selah, stop there and just pause for 10 or 15 seconds and just think about the verse that you just read. And um, that, that has been a, a very good thing for me to do. Okay, verses 5 through 6 of the third Psalm here. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. And so he says 
that even though there's 10,000s of people who surround me, and even though there's all of these problems that surround me, he said, Lord, you sustain me. This is the same David in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, as he was talking to Saul about them going out to fight Goliath. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You know, as David went out to fight that battle, David was not going out in his own strength. He was not relying on himself. He said, whenever I go out here and I fight this Philistine, he said, it's going to be the hand of God that delivers me from Goliath. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He said, you sustain me even though there's 10,000 people who have set themselves against me. In the in the last two verses of the third psalm here, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. So he says that, um, he says to arise, O Lord. He says, you will save me. Now, this phrase here in this uh, in this psalm, this type of phrase shows up several places in the psalms where he says you have struck all the enemies on the cheekbone and you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, to me, in my worldly thinking, I'm thinking, yeah, man, just knock, knock some of these people's teeth out. That'd make me feel a lot better if somebody did that. That's not what he means here, I don't think. Um, of course, the psalms are poetry, and they're not literal. I mean, David was not asking God literally to come down and somehow knock the teeth out of his enemies. So it's not like somebody saying, man, I'd love to lock, knock that guy's teeth out. He meant it in reference to a wild animal, I believe. You know, if a, if a wild animal's teeth were broken out, they would symbolically become powerless. And so whenever he's saying this, it's basically a symbol of David saying, please make my enemies powerless. And so I think that's a good application for us. As we look to emulate David in our prayers, we shouldn't ask that our enemies have their teeth knocked out, but we should pray that they might become powerless in their endeavors for evil. And that may be something good for us to pray, is that those who are against God and against his will, that they would become powerless in their endeavors for evil. And along with that, make sure that we aren't the ones who are unknowingly bringing about the improper influence against God's will. Make sure that I'm not the one who's, who's doing what shouldn't be done. That's something always to consider whenever we're in that type of a situation. The Lord is our helper. Just like David, who was a king, and he brought about some very important things in the plans of God, we are God's people also. We have, we have things to accomplish for God. God hears us just like he heard his servant David. And I would say we even have a better situation than David did because we have the, our intercessor of Jesus Christ now. We're able to go boldly to God's throne because of Jesus Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my help helper. I will not fear 
what can man do to me? This is the, the point of this psalm is, is in, our, in our trouble and in our, our problems and in the, the truly difficult things that we go to, God is there to help us. He's there to save us. Don't turn away from him in those times. So just as a few applications, I mean, just a recap of things real quick. We should slow down to think about these things. That say law deal, that, that's just been a really very cool thing for me. And when you, and I guess more importantly than just in that specific case, it's something that helps me to just think about other stuff in general. You know, just like we do on the first day of the week when we come to very pointedly to remember Jesus, and I forgot to look up that word. I don't know if I, that's a word or not. I, I was going to look that up. Pointedly, but um, to just stop and to just truly like, just like a laser beam, just focus on Christ. And just stopping and slowing down to think about things. And that's something that we should do in general. Not just when we read that word say law in the Psalms, but when we're reading anything in the Bible, to just stop. Just stop every once in a while and just, just truly think, what is this that I read? What does this mean to me? We should slow down and truly meditate on the, true, the truths in the third psalm. We should consider how other scriptures help us to understand other scriptures better also. Think about how one scripture influences another and, and help that to help us understand the Bible better. So the, the third psalm, the psalm of David as he fled from his son Absalom, there's a lot, a lot of good here. And if you're struggling with things and going through difficult times, this is definitely a good psalm to, to read and to put to use in your life. If you're here tonight and you've been taught the gospel and you're ready to obey tonight, you're ready to, uh, to make a confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you're ready to repent, to turn from your old lifestyle and ready to just get on that path that leads to God and you're ready to, to be buried in baptism and to, to put on Christ in that act, we would love to help you if you're ready to do that tonight. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with anything that's going on in your life, and if the prayers from, from your brothers and sisters here could help you to lift you up and to help you uh, in your walk, we would love to help one of either class. If you'd come and sit on the front pew as we stand and sing the song of invitation.